As evident by the comments by Dr. Sperano, clinical management of patients with breast cancer is now strongly shaped by two key factors within the tumor, the presence of the estrogen receptor protein and amplification of the HER2 gene. To further clarify how these factors alter the approach to clinical decision-making, I decided to conduct a mini-education experiment and construct in my mind two fictionalized case histories in which the only difference in the two cases is the HER2 status of the tumor. I presented these scenarios to medical oncologist Dr. Daniel Budman. This fictionalized woman that I'm going to present to you is, I'll call her Melissa Grant, She's 60 years old. She's happily married to her second husband, who's 78, in perfect health, as they both are. She has worked her way up through the university ladder as an administrator and now runs the transplant division there and loves her work, works all the time, totally devoted to it, and has her routine mammogram, and there's something abnormal there, and four weeks later, she shows up in your office. She's had a lumpectomy and sentinel node biopsy, The lumpectomy shows a 1.8 centimeter tumor. It is ER positive and HER2 negative, strongly ER positive, NPR positive, HER2 negative, and three sentinel lymph nodes are negative. She, being in the medical field, has tried to kind of do research and figure out what's going on, but she is completely freaked out, scared, and particularly concerned about the possibility of chemotherapy. I would like you to kind of think through the variables that I've presented to you and and tell me how you would think through decision-making in this situation and what's changed in the last couple of years in managing a patient like this. Probably the most important area over the last five years has been the new information from genomics, which has shown that there are at least four, possibly five different types of breast cancer, which are biologically distinct, probably have a different etiology, for sure have a different clinical path and that we're just appreciating it now. And the problem with most of the studies that we've used over the years is we've lumped everybody together. And what it basically does is it dilutes out a signal of whether or not particular therapy might be good or bad. In the case of the woman you just presented, she's ER positive 1.8. We know from overview analysis that there is some benefit from chemotherapy, but the majority of benefit for cytotoxic therapy was in the ER negatives. And there was virtually As far as follow-up in some of the studies we have in CLGB of over six years, there really was almost nothing seen for the ER positives. I would think this lady is an ideal candidate for doing an oncotype. And the obvious reasons are that if she would be willing to participate with the TaylorRx trial, which I think is an important trial to validate prospectively the oncotype data, with the realization that breast cancers are really heterogeneous, not homogeneous, Genomic arrays, of which the oncotype is based on a thing called RT-PCR, have been able to distinguish these various types. Now, what do those tests actually look at? They look at gene expression, and the various tests do not necessarily agree on all the genes, but they give an idea of both responsiveness and outcome. And the oncotype testing and on retrospective data from the NSAVP suggests that you can identify patients who do very well on hormonal therapy and really not need cytotoxic therapy, while there is another group of patients, and this was all node negative estrogen receptor positive patients, who definitely do need cytotoxic therapy. And therefore, you're thinking more of individualizing and dealing with what's now known as the heterogeneity of these diseases. Now, what kinds of genes are looked at in the oncotype assay? 
It's 21 gene assay. It's partially driven by receptor status, partially driven by HER2 new status, partially driven by proliferation status. So the proliferation genes, ER positive genes, HER2 positive expression genes, 17 in total that they look at. Yeah, there's a whole bunch of them, right? So how would that work in terms of a patient like this? Let's put the trial aside just in terms of a non-protocol situation. What would the therapeutic options be for a woman like this? She's menopausal. She's been menopausal since she's 52 years old. What would be the different options you might be considering for her for adjuvant therapy? I think the critical option, especially as a person who doesn't want the toxic side effects of the currently used chemotherapy drugs, would be, could one do very well with hormonal therapy alone? And if she were to have a low oncotype score, this portends that she indeed will do very well just with hormonal therapy alone. The Taylor-Arx trial, which I mentioned, is basically to validate that this is indeed true, that patients are divided based upon their oncotype into a low group of recurrence, which will just be treated with hormonal therapy, an intermediate where one's not quite sure whether or not there's an advantage to give chemotherapy, and they're randomized, and a high-risk group that will receive chemotherapy to try to validate this. But based upon what we have, if this lady said, the present time I want to use with the available knowledge, if she had a low recurrence score, I would consider using an aromatase inhibitor in that setting. And what specific aromatase inhibitor would you likely use? That's harder because we don't have the prospective data yet of the MA27, which would be exomestine versus anastrozole, to see as far as toxicity. As far as my reading the literature, they're all efficacious. I tend to use anastrozole more only because there's a longer follow-up, and therefore there's more safety data. And so in terms of that, I guess the first of a bunch of aromatase trials that were reported was in 2001, and that was the ATAC trial, which was anastrozole. And I guess subsequently there was a trial, the big study, with letrozole. But as you point out, there's not quite as much follow-up. So she would end up being on anastrozole either way. The question is, would she get chemo? I think that's the major question. And I think that's a major life issue. And, you know, I'm sure that all your physicians see this and the patients surely see it, is that if they can avoid cytotoxic chemotherapy, they're quite appreciative. And we'll talk about what would be involved with the cytotoxic chemotherapy but do you participate in the TaylorRx trial? Yes, we do. Do you think it would be likely you would bring that up as a possibility to her? We've discussed this with every patient that we are hoping that can just do on hormonal therapy or where we're not quite sure, quite frankly, who's node-negative, receptor-positive. So if you were to present this trial to her, as you just described, that she would have the oncotype assay done on her tumor tissue. If the recurrent score was low, she'd get hormonal therapy. You're saying it'd be a nasrazole. The recurrent score is high. She get chemotherapy. I'm going to ask you what kind of chemotherapy. But in that intermediate range, which is maybe a quarter of the results where we're not sure whether they benefit by chemotherapy or not, she would have to consent to being in the study and randomly being assigned by computer to get either chemo or not, correct? If she were to be on the study. How do you find people responding to that possibility? That's kind of an interesting dilemma to allow a computer to decide if you're going to get chemotherapy. I think it's an important question. The problem I have in the New York area is that many people that we see are shopping, and they have preconceived notions, whether it be family members, other physicians, and they come in rather savvy about what they want to do. 
So it takes a lot of time to discuss that this is really an unknown area to really have them appreciate. It's hard for a patient to sort of come to a physician, to a specialist in an area, and the specialist says, well, I really don't know what to do. And obviously that raises a lot of alarms in every patient. You know, I mean, am I doing the right thing? Am I seeing the right doctor? So overall, roughly of the patients that you present this trial to, how many say yes, they'll go in it? I say 20%. Yeah, that sounds about right. And what do you think the motivation there is? Do you think they're trying to sort of move science forward to do something that'll help themselves? What are they thinking? I think there is some altruism. It is also that some of the patients we have who are rather sophisticated realize that there are many layers of examination of these trials, both for safety and efficacy, and that the NCI, the FDA, that there are safety monitoring committees, that if there's something wrong with the trial, that it would be stopped early, or indeed, if it's a positive trial, the results would be indicated to them. So it is not just one physician making a decision for them therapeutically. They're being looked at at many levels. Right. And I know a lot of patients like that. I'd like that, knowing that, you know, my case has a lot of different people are kind of looking at So if you were to discuss this with her, obviously one of the questions that would come up would be, if the recurrence score is high, what kind of chemotherapy do you think you would likely utilize, and how would you answer that? That will vary tremendously. Everybody has their preconceived notions. There are many members of the CLGB breast committee that I deal with who believe that Don Berry's data, where he showed minimal benefit for receptor-positive patients with cytotoxics, would... Actually, it takes longer because we know these patients relapse slowly and that one has to be patient. You will see the difference. Of course, that didn't take into account the recurrence score. No, it did not. And so uh, for the practical question is purposes, which cytotoxic. I mean, I can tell you what I use for myself. What do you use? I'm a rather traditionalist, and until there's good proof that a taxane adds anything to the ER-positive patient in this setting, I've been using traditional AC. The reasons for AC is because of patient compliance. This is an issue that is sort of not always recognized that the older treatments, such as the oral cyclophosphamide, were very nauseating, and many patients actually do not take the proper dosing because of it. So you'd be considering four cycles of AC? Four cycles of AC. And one of the other options that a lot of people have been talking about recently is a so-called TC regimen, docetaxel or taxotere plus cyclophosphamide. Can you talk a little bit about that regimen, what we know about it, and what you think about it? This was recently reported by Steve Jones in the Journal of Clinical Oncology and is basically comparing four cycles of chemotherapy with either docetaxel cyclophosphamide or doxorubicin cyclophosphamide, ivriamycin. And the concern we've all had over the years is though doxorubicin is one of the most active drugs we have, is the long-term risk of cardiomyopathy. And indeed, even in elderly patients, high must described more recently mild dysplasia in some of these patients. And that's believed to be due to the doxorubicin. Therefore, a substitution of another drug would be potentially beneficial for people who have a relatively good prognosis. The U.S. Oncology Group used approximately 800 patients in their study and compared TC versus AC. And the results of the study actually showed that the TC was better as far as outcome. Toxicities were very manageable, and I think it's an eminently reasonable regimen to use. Have you yourself used it? Yes, I have. Steve, you talk to him and the people in U.S. Oncology, and they say that it's better tolerated than they see. I think it is. Many physicians are 
reluctant to change when they're used to a regimen and they know that it has efficacy. And to some degree, AC is like that, and I've done that myself. You're familiar with it, you know toxicities, and you feel very comfortable. I started using TC among patients who had borderline cardiac function who I felt really needed an effective regimen. And I believe it is indeed well-tolerated, and whether it will supplant AC is another question. That I don't know, but it's a reasonable regimen to use. You mentioned the issue of cardiac toxicity. I hear more discussion about that and particularly concern about long-term cardiac toxicity 20, 30 years down the line as these women get older. Do you have concerns about that? I think of all the drugs we use, the cytotoxic drugs, have major side effects that we really have not dealt with well because the patients as a group have either not been followed long enough or they've had a malignant process where they don't live long enough. And as the evolution of treatment has changed where now people are living longer, we have to start thinking about these secondary processes. So I think you're absolutely right that we don't have a good handle on what's going to happen to relatively healthy women 20 or 30 years later. And for that reason, our selection of drugs should be to try to minimize toxicity when all possible. You also mentioned the issue of myelodysplasia, and there's also the issue of leukemia. How much Mm -hmm. of a threat is that with the anthracyclines? Well, it seems to be part dose-related and also age-related. Again, if you look at the CLGB experience that HIMUS reported, the majority of these patients were over age 60. The incidence of both myelodysplasia and AML approached 5% in their follow-up. This was a variety of CLGB trials, but large numbers, thousands of patients, so that I think it's a real concern. Now, this is seen mainly with the anthracyclines. What about the taxanes? Hasn't been seen yet. It's not to say that taxanes are necessarily safe. In animal systems, as you know, they do have cardiac effects, which haven't been seen in people, but has not been seen. We know that anthracyclines cause specific DNA abnormalities, which predispose you toward myelodysplasia. So I want to probe a little bit more, too, about what you would be saying to her in this initial visit about all these things. And let's pick up a little bit on what you would tell her to expect in terms of the anastrozole. I think the difficulties with any of these aromatase inhibitors are the articular complaints. It is said that about 10% of patients have articular complaints. I've had four patients who have been so bad that I had to take them off these drugs and actually transiently use narcotics because the pain was so bad. Do you normally try another aromatase inhibitor or tamoxifen or what do you... I usually switch on a non-steroidal to a steroidal aromatase inhibitor. I don't know whether it's a placebo effect that some women seem to tolerate the other drug better. This is an area that needs to be actively investigated because in the symptomatic patient, it really destroys quality of life. Can you talk a little bit more about where the arthralgias occurred and when they usually start? Usually you see it in the first month. Some of the patients are fortunate enough, a majority I would think, although I haven't consistently looked at it, that within several months the arthralgias are either diminished or they manage to live with it and they sort of ignore it. But usually it's seen rather rapidly in the first month. It usually involves the hands, the feet, occasionally the hips. Most people function, as I said, I had a minority of patients who could not function, who barely could walk, and we just had to stop it. Is there a time sequence during the day when these tend to occur more in the morning or with exercise, or does it get better with exercise? It seems to be mainly in the morning. In that sense, it sort of mimics what you see with a rheumatoid patient, but you don't have the demonstrable changes you see with rheumatoid arthritis. Any medications or management strategies that seem to help other than changing it? A lot of things have been done. Chondroitin sulfate has been used. Many of these women 
women talk, they have support groups and everything else that they will talk about these things. So chondroitin sulfate's been used, again, whether it has some placebo effect, some people say yes, some people say no. Non-steroidals obviously have been used. As I said, if it's particularly troublesome, I'll usually try to change drugs if I can. And another issue in terms of the aromatase inhibitors relates to bone. Can you kind of overview what the issue there is? Yeah, I think that's, again, a major issue. It's an issue that one can deal with, but it's a major issue. We know that there's a proportion of patients, and the majority of the patients who get bone loss because you're driving the estrogen levels in a postmenopausal woman to virtually zero and therefore have no agonist activity for the bone, is the majority who do get bone loss usually start osteopenic or osteoporotic. The major bone loss is seen in the first year. So what most physicians do that I'm familiar with would be a baseline study of one year. If a person is already osteopenic or osteoporotic, there are studies from Europe, such as the ZFAST study, that have suggested the use of bisphosphonates can abrogate the bone loss. So that I don't think it's an absolute counterindication for an osteoporotic woman who really needs an aromatase inhibitor to get it. Obviously, the more information you have before you start treatment, the better you can manage it. So for a person who's osteopenic or osteoporotic, I would start them on a bisphosphonate. For a person with a normal bone density, I would wait a year because it's just an added drug and potentially an added complication. And using that kind of follow-up, and of course, when the trials were done, that wasn't done because we didn't know what to expect. But using that type of approach, do you feel that there's still going to be an excess risk of fracture, or do you think you can kind of prevent that? That's a critical issue, really. There's no question that you can prevent bone density loss by the current imaging techniques. The question you're really asking is more important, and that's the quality of the bone that's there. And there is some concern with the bisphosphonates that the osteoclast, which is the cell that resorbs bone, also is responsible for initially dealing with microfractures. And we have, in wear and tear on our body, we make microfractures in our bones. So what normally will happen is the osteoclast will eat that microfracture, and then the cell, the osteoblast, will put down new good bone. The difficulty when one uses a bisphosphonate is you inhibit osteoclast function. So you have the osteoblast putting down bone, but whether the quality of bone is as good as normal bone is controversial. In the ZFAST study, for example, the fracture rate, even though you had increased bone density, the fracture rate was still increased. Let's track out through the other potential side effects, and one that we become very sensitive to in terms of hormonal therapy, particularly tamoxifen, are hot flashes, vasomotor symptoms. What do we see with AIs, and how does that compare to tamoxifen? That's fairly similar, which was sort of frustrating. One was hoping that you would actually see less because tamoxifen has agonist activity. But when you look at the large trials, the reported incidents seem to be in the same order. It seems to be more prevalent among women who have just become postmenopausal. Now, whether or not there's some other reason for sensitivity to hormonal fluxes at that age group, but you don't really see as much as the woman gets older. So women in her late 60s or 70s, you're less apt to see it. So if this woman at the age of 60 had gone through a lot of vasomotor symptoms when she went through menopause at age 52, but now kind of, you know, has never had to take any hormone therapy and now really has very little what would you tell her to expect in terms of the likelihood that all of a sudden this is starting to be a huge problem? She may have it. And then the question, again, is quality of life issues. What likelihood would there be that she's going to have that kind of a problem in your experience? I would suspect at age 60 that she has still a significant amount. Percentage-wise, I have not looked at this. I can't tell you, except that there is some growing literature. The older you are, the less you're apt to have it. 
Now, one of the other issues that we become sensitive to in terms of hormonal therapy from tamoxifen is endometrial cancer. What about the aromatase inhibitors and the endometrium? The mechanism of action of aromatase inhibitors is totally different than tamoxifen. And tamoxifen binds to the estrogen receptor, actually binds to both the two isoforms called alpha and beta, and has agonist activity in the uterus. So it acts like an estrogen. In contrast, what one's doing with an aromatase inhibitor by driving the estrogen levels to virtually zero is taking away any agonist activity. So the uterus is not a problem. What about the issue of thrombosis? deep vein thrombosis, pulmonary embolus. Again, we've gotten concerned. We're aware of that from tamoxifen. What about the aromatase inhibitors? That's less so. There may be an intrinsic background among patients who have had cancer and also as we get older, but the levels are much lower on aromatase inhibitors. Let's talk a little bit about the issue of efficacy on the aromatase inhibitors. We've seen in our patterns of care studies a huge shift from tamoxifen to the aromatase inhibitors on postmenopausal women is that in general, how do you approach the decision about hormonal therapy in those patients? My bias, if I can, because one of the concerns, if you look at the ATAC trial, was that there was an early relapse group in the first two or three years. And we don't have data yet on the big Fenta trial, which is comparing letrozole to tamoxifen. We know that letrozole is better at two years, but there was a crossover, tamoxifen to letrozole or letrozole to tamoxifen. We don't have any crossover data yet. In the mouse model, for whatever it's worth, because many times animal models do not parallel the human situation, giving continuous AI up front seems to be better. Since we have long-term data now of over six and a half years in the ATAC trial using anastrozole, I tend to use, if there is no other reason that we can't use it, an AI up front rather than tamoxifen. At one point, there was a talk about using tamoxifen for a couple years and then using the aromatase inhibitors. And, of course, there are trials that are going to answer that question eventually. Right now, do you think that's a strategy that is useful to consider? Well, Hal Burstein has done some modeling at the Farber where he thinks it may be useful. And the problem is, again, it's like modeling. It's like the animal model. You don't know what the human situation is going to be. Since there is a relapse rate, which you can see in the ATAC trial early, which is dampened if one takes an aromatase inhibitor, in that case, anastrozole versus tamoxifen, I tend, again, to use anastrozole. Okay, so let's take this case one step forward, and we'll say that she does agree to go in the Taylor Rx trial. And in fact, it turns out that she has a high recurrence score, 38. Mm-hmm. So you present that to her, and she has uh, typical side effects, but is able to continue working through that period of time and gets through it, recovers from it and now is out five years, and she is still taking the anastrozole. Had some arthralgias to begin, but kind of went away, and really now that's not causing a problem. How do you approach the decision about whether to continue her at five years? This is a major problem now in medical oncology, and that is with the realization that, especially the luminal A's, which are ERPR positives, are almost like follicular lymphoma. They respond to treatment, but they relapse slowly, and they seem to have a continuous relapse. And when you look at the MA17 data, you see that up to half the patients who eventually relapse or ER positives can relapse after five years. So it's a disease that is a chronic disease. And the question then is risk versus benefit. The majority of patients who relapse after five years are node positive, 
And I think that's probably the biggest distinguishing feature. And Peter Ravden does have in his Adjuvant Online program a program where one can look at the risk at five years. And I think it's a useful program, and I use it with the patients when I'm not sure what their risk is at that point or if I think they have a high risk or a low risk, and I'm trying to sway them either to continue on a hormonal therapy or not. The problem is we don't have good data beyond the M17 suggesting that hormonal treatment for greater than five years is of value. There's that one study. I would tend to do it because I think this is a chronic relapsing disease. The data from the NSAVP study will be very important, which is the B42. Are you participating in that study? Yes, we are. So would you likely present that to her as an option? We would. So you would say to her, we could either continue or stop. I'm not really sure. Would you like to go in this trial? Yes. We would actually talk about two things. The MA17 has an extension so that patients would be continued even longer to see if it has a difference and use that as background and then explain that one of the problems is the long-term loss of estrogen function in even a postmenopausal female is really sort of an unknown quandary. At the present time, the major problems that have been seen have been articular and bone. But when you're talking about five or 10 years or more of total estrogen deprivation, is that really safe for that person? We have no real data. So I think this is an important trial. Unfortunately, we don't have the answer at the present time. Because in medicine, we do lots of things which seem to be logical, and then we find out after the fact that perhaps it wasn't the smartest thing to do. So you would say to her, one of the options here is you could go in this trial. If you go in the trial, it'll be randomly determined. You'll take five years more therapy or stop right now. Mm -hmm. And if you don't want to go in the trial or you don't want to participate in a study, what would you? I would use Peter Ravidin's program and then discuss risks. And if the person has a significant risk, and they're cognizant that we don't, again, no long-term toxicity data, I would offer that. So we'll say that since she's been so involved with the transplant unit and sees the benefit of clinical research, she enters another trial, Hmm. and she gets randomized in the B42 trial, and she's randomized to continue. And then two years later, while continuing on the aromatase inhibitor, she presents to you with progressive bone pain, a number of different locations in her back, in her leg, in her arms, a couple ribs. You do a bone scan, and she has what appears to be clearly metastatic disease. Can you talk a little bit, of, first of all, about your discussions with a patient in this kind of a situation at that point in time, just at a human personal level? I think it's very frustrating. It's hard to live with a disease for years. In our American society, we sort of want one, two, three, decision one way or the other. So to have it hanging over for you for years is frustrating. Thinking that you've done everything according to the book correctly and still in trouble is even more difficult. It's, it's very depressing. And I think it's depressing not only for the patient, but for the doctor, because we do root for the patients. Do you find that patients in this kind of a situation might question what happened? You know, an educated patient like this might go back and say, did you really give me the right chemotherapy or question what has happened up to this point? I think there's always questions. Again, in the New York area, there are so many opinions that I think probably less so than if the patient didn't have that available. I think they are more cognizant that it's sort of the state of the art rather than the therapy. At that point in time, though, I think in a positive sense is that what we do know, receptor-positive bony disease can have a long life and that there are many drugs in development, which potentially there are over 400 drugs in development that might actually be curative at some point. And if we can maintain quality of life, that person 
might hopefully get one of those drugs that might eventually cure metastatic disease. Now, this woman has a staging workup, and there are no other sites of disease besides the bone metastasis. There's not one in particular that's really a problem. It's just a bunch of different areas, but she's somewhat uncomfortable. You're able to relieve that with non-steroidals, Tylenol, an occasional oral opiate, but basically she's pretty stable. What do you think likely you'd be thinking about in terms of therapy at that point in time? So now this relapse has occurred while one an aromatase inhibitor. What's known mainly in animal models, when you deprive a tumor cell of estrogen but do not kill it, is that many times, but not always, it becomes hypersensitive so that the estrogen receptor actually becomes more active. It's an area of active investigation now because one reason that it becomes hypersensitive is that the EGFR superfamily can be stimulated and it actually phosphorylates the receptor and it makes it work better in the absence of estrogen so that one of the studies that we're participating in is a lapatinib study to take patients like that and give them lapatinib to see whether or not you can reverse hormonal resistance. Now, if you don't have that, again, what's happened over the last five to 10 years is we have a plethora of hormonal drugs so that we're not stuck that this is the only drug and one doesn't necessarily want to go to cytotoxics because these women can have bony disease for years and years and there's no reason to use up your cytotoxics. So I think the major consideration would be either to give the patient tamoxifen, which is a reasonable drug in that setting, or to consider switching to an alternate form of hormonal treatment such as Faslodex, which destroys the estrogen receptor. And again, an active drug in that setting. One could also use, and it's been used mainly with disease stability, a steroidal amortase inhibitor. Exomestine. Exomestine. I would probably use Facilidex in that setting and hold tamoxifen in reserve. What's known about Facilidex, and not all the doctors realize it, is that when it destroys the estrogen receptor, if you re-biopsy those patients within a month receiving Facilidex, they're usually estrogen receptor negative. So I get calls that, you know, the woman was ER positive, now she's ER negative, what do I do? And the receptor in these patients who have resistant disease is not gone. If you wait, it comes back. So that if you were to treat with tamoxifen after Facilidex, you will see responses. And that actually was described at the last San Antonio meeting. Now, Facilidex, of course, is given as an intramuscular injection. And one of the issues that's been discussed has been the issue of should you start out with a loading dose. Can you talk about that issue and what you do? Facilidex is an interesting drug. It was developed as a congener of estrogen to be an estrogen antagonist. And instead of just binding to the estrogen receptor, when it binds the estrogen receptor, it distorts it. The difficulty is because it's in a depot form, you may not get effective levels for one to two months. And therefore, there was an impetus to look at loading. What would you tell her to expect in terms of side effects from the fulvestrin? Again, they're hormonal mainly. Usually they're not that bad, but it's the type of hormonal changes you've mentioned before, and that may be the hot flashes and occasionally mood swings, things like that. Surprisingly, most people do not complain of the injection. What about the arthralgias and bone problems we talked about with the AIs? I haven't seen that. So we'll say that this lady goes on the fulvestrin, tolerates it extremely well, is on it for about nine months. Her bone pain improves while she's on it. But then after about nine months, she starts to get her bone pain back. You do another workup, and now she has two new liver mets. They're not huge, but they're definitely new lesions present in the liver and a couple new bone lesions. Again, she's not particularly symptomatic. She's not even as symptomatic as she was when she first started. What do you think your likely next step would be? 
in that case, I would give her tamoxifen and watch the liver closely. And if there were deterioration, then I think at that point in time, we're stuck with using cytotoxic therapy. So you give her the tamoxifen and her bone pain really starts to get actually a little bit worse. And after a few months, you repeat the scan and her liver lesions are getting worse. So how would you think through her treatment options at that point? One of the problems I think we have now in breast cancer treatment is that we have numerous drugs, and it becomes almost a Chinese alphabet soup of what to use. And it gets very confusing because you cannot look at every permutation and do a study on everything. If a person does not have life-threatening disease, I've usually used one drug in sequence. And the reason is that the quality of life is better, and in a metastatic setting, Whether or not you're really making a major impact on overall survival is very unclear. So one chemotherapeutic agent. Yes. I would consider one chemotherapeutic agent at a time. Depending upon the rapidity of the illness and how bad, one could consider the ECOG-Avastin-Pachytaxel combination, which is active and has shown at least a disease-free survival. Because I think if anything's going to make a difference in metastatic disease now, it's going to be combinations with the biologic. When you look at the cytotoxics and you look at getting a crossover of two versus one, the overall survival looks about the same. But the biologics, there may be a difference. So if the person had disease that was relatively rapidly growing, one could consider that as one of the combinations. So that would be bevacizumab plus paclitaxel. That's one combination. Now, that would obviously depend upon other factors. Bevacizumab, as you know can have significant toxicities so that you have to pick your patient appropriately. And what kind of patient would you not want to use bevacizumab? And this woman, for example, who is 67 years old at this point and you know still in good health other than her breast cancer, I assume it wouldn't be much of a problem. But what would be a concern for you? A uh, concern with me would be somebody who had a prior clotting history, has a history of renal disease, has a history of significant hypertension, hypertension probably being the most important of the toxic side effects. Rarely it's been described to be causative for neurologic deterioration. If there were any underlying neurologic disease, again, I would probably be more hesitant. So one of the options would be paclitaxel, bevacizumab. I want to track back a little bit about some of the clinical research data that underlies your interest in this, but what other options would you be thinking about? Again, it depends on the rapidity of the illness. If it's manageable, I would try single agent. I would tend to use probably a taxane in that situation. So you might use a taxane without the bevacizumab? Might use it, yes. Which taxane? That, again, will also depend upon the other comorbid conditions. If the woman can take corticosteroids and doesn't have diabetes, then I would probably use pacotaxel on a weekly basis done as the CLGB experience under Andy Seidman. If you're dealing with a person that you're concerned about the use of weekly pachytaxel and you don't want to use corticosteroids, a diabetic or some other comorbid condition for that reason, then I would think about abraxane on a weekly basis. Okay, so let's track back into some of the clinical research to just underlay you know, some of the things that you just talked about. And beginning with the bevacizumab paclitaxel option that you discussed, can you talk about what happened that sort of led you to be convinced that this should be something that would be offered to a woman like this? We have a large ECOG randomized trial, which basically randomized patients to pachytaxel or bevacizumab with pachytaxel and showed at least at the present time a disease-free survival advantage in significant visceral disease. Now, one would like to see an overall survival, perhaps that would be presented at the next ASCO but it was significant, so that I think it's a reasonable option. Using these antiangiogenic drugs seemed to double the response rate, and again, with a further survival, I think it's a reasonable option. 
How much does adding in the bevacizumab to the taxane add in terms of side effects? Again, I think it partially is due to comorbid conditions. At least the patients that I've treated, the major problem has been watching for hypertension. So, I mean, do they feel bad? Do they have no. some dysphoria because of the medication? No, that hasn't been a problem. So it's more, some of the times their blood pressures will go up. Any other additional morbidities, lifestyle kind of changes that happen because you add in the bevacizumab? I think mainly just the time it takes to infuse the drug. I mean, it's more time in the treatment area. So but beyond that, really, no. It's not like adding another chemo agent. No, it's not like adding a noxious cytotoxic. Okay, so that's one of the things you brought up as a possibility. And then the other was the issue of a taxing without the bevacizumab, and you brought up nabpaclitaxel. Can you explain what nabpaclitaxel is, how it's given, and how you decide between using it and paclitaxel? Nabpaclitaxel is a new formulation of paclitaxel, which is water-soluble. And it's combined to serum albumin, which allows it to be given rapidly and actually allows you to give it on various schedules. The FDA-approved schedule is every three weeks at 260 per meter squared. It's been explored on alternate schedules as has pachytaxel and has particular activity, as does pachytaxel, on a weekly schedule. And at least in my own experience, I think it's better tolerated. It's active in the randomized trial of nabpachytaxel versus pachytaxel. It was more active than traditional pachytaxel at 175 per meter squared every three weeks. In the more recent studies, which were presented in San Antonio, the weekly schedule was better than the every three-week schedule of docetaxel at full dose. So basically, there's data showing it may be more efficacious than both paclitaxel and docetaxel? And probably a little less toxic. So in a patient like this, for example, if you decided that you didn't really need to use the bezacizumab or for some reason weren't going to use it, and as you mentioned, you want to decide between these two agents, how would you make that decision? She doesn't have diabetes or any other problem. What would you likely do? I think I would discuss both options with her. I'm listening to this. It sounds like there would be an advantage with NAB. Do you think that's likely what a patient like this would want? Yes. Are there economic or financial constraints on the situation? I know that NAB, the cost of it is higher. Has that become an issue in this decision? It may become an issue with the copay. I've not dealt with that yet, but I would suspect at some point this is a generic problem, as we all know in oncology, is that the drugs are horrendously expensive and that the copay is not insignificant. So that potentially could become an issue, but at least in my own patient population so far, I really have not had a problem with that. Now, if you do use napaclitaxel, do you use steroids? No. Okay, so I guess that's one differentiating point to this patient, which would be situation A, paclitaxel, you're going to get decadron. Situation B, nab, you're not. Is that correct? That's correct, and also the drug can be given much more rapidly. Rapidly, so the infusion time would be how long? 15 minutes. Okay, and I guess the other thing was situation A, paclitaxel, you're going to get antihistamines. Mm-hmm. Situation B yes. or not, because you not. don't need that with the Abraxin because there's no crema for. Again, without any preceding diabetes, just average healthy woman in her 60s, what would you tell her to expect if she was going to get the problems she might encounter with both the decadron and the antihistamines that might be avoided? The immediate lethargy from the antihistamines is obvious. Is that something that most people mind? Or does it, it create varies. practical problems with driving and stuff? It varies. Well, it is a practical problem, yes that you really don't want to take a chance with a person driving. 
I think the corticosteroids a slightly larger issue in the sense of causing hypomania, of the diabetic effects of it, of the potential cushionoid effects, although one can many times diminish the use of corticosteroids if they're on a weekly schedule. When you say hypomania, what about just plain insomnia? How often does that occur? I would characterize that as part of it. And how bad is it with the typical pre-medications we use? It varies tremendously. A lot of these things are very individualized, but it can be rather severe in some patients. So does it last for nights? No. It's usually a day or two. A day or two. I guess the other issue there with the NAB, as you mentioned, would be the shorter infusion time. How much of an impact does that have? Again, busy woman like this trying to keep her job going, et cetera. How much time does it actually turn into that they save? I think it's a significant amount of time. First of all, it's not just the infusion for that individual patient, but as practices are rather busy and as the combinations we're using are getting more and more complicated and the infusions are longer and longer, the actual chair time per patient is becoming more valuable. And therefore, rather than have that person wait, you can get that type of person in and out much more quickly. Now, what about nabpaclitoxel plus bevacizumab? That would seem to be a natural combination in terms of taking advantage of what the nab offers. I think the bevacizumab is going to have sort of a universal generic effect. And this was described by Jan in Science uh, about two years ago, that it seems to normalize the blood vessels in a tumor, allowing drugs to get into that tumor. So if the tumor is sensitive to drugs, you can get higher levels. And so I would suspect, but I'm not aware of data that's been published yet, that it should be a very reasonable combination based on that type of data. Okay, so we'll say that this lady gets treated and she does great and her symptoms go away and hopefully that'll continue for a long time. And now I want to backtrack and go back to the beginning again of this case. Same thing. She presents 1.8 centimeter tumor, node negative, ER positive. However, we're going to change one thing. She's HER2 positive. The tumor is HER2 positive. IHC 3 plus fish test is also done, and that's positive. How would that change the way you approach the patient? I think it changes dramatically. What we know about HER2 nude positive disease, or indeed the basal type also, is that these are particularly aggressive tumors. Again, sort of the analogy like to lymphoma, these are sort of like high-grade lymphoma. You either can catch it and deal with it quickly, or it's going to kill the patient in the first three years. So that it's a different kettle of fish, and again, it's the appreciation that these are heterogeneous diseases. It's not a homogeneous breast cancer. So her positivity to me is a major issue. The FDA at the present time has not agreed to sanction trastuzumab for node-negative disease. And that was based upon the North American studies, which had a paucity of patients that were node negative. There is a large HERA trial, which is the European trial, which was chemotherapy followed by trastuzumab, in which a third of the patients, about 1,000 patients, were node negative. And when you look at the forest plot, those node negative patients benefited. So that I think that's a disease you have to treat more aggressively where I think the problems we have in clinical management is not the 1.8, where I believe most breast physicians would agree if you're HER2 positive, even though it's not FDA approved, to consider using trastuzumab unless there's, again, some other counterindication. It's the size of when you would not use it. In other words, there is retrospective data from the MD Anderson that looked at the literature that some T1As do poorly. T1A being? Less than 0.6. So tiny tumor. So the question really is, how small is small? And I don't think we know that. So standard of care, if the nodes have been positive, she's going to get chemo, trastuzumab, and then hormone therapy. Mm -hmm. 
if the tumor is node negative, what you're saying is once it starts getting down under a sonometer, maybe people start questioning, but still a lot of people are thinking about even using it in those patients. And the problem is there's a paucity data for a greater than a sonometer for sure. So what specific regimen would she be likely to receive? That's going to vary. And many physicians are using the intergroup study, which had some note negatives, high risk, and that was AC followed by T-herceptin. And T being paclitaxel. T being paclitaxel. As a group, I usually use the HERA because the incidence of cardiac disease from the trastuzumab is the least. Now, when you say the HERA... Which was chemotherapy followed by trastuzumab. So in the other trials, the trastuzumab was started during the chemo, HERA started after. The other trials, actually, what we have was chemotherapy versus chemotherapy concurrently pachytaxel trastuzumab or chemotherapy pachytaxel followed sequentially by trastuzumab. And those two arms, again, statistically, there's not a difference, but they may be over time. And then the patient, after the chemo is done, would continue the trastuzumab for a year. For a year. And what regimen do you tend specifically to utilize in a woman like this? Again, because the retrospective data from Don Berry, I've tended to use AC, not give them pachytaxel, be very traditional in that sense, and then, as I said, follow the HERA type of trial, which had the lowest cardiac incidence by giving them single-agent trastuzumab every three weeks for a year. Now, what would you tell her to expect in terms of the impact of adding in the trastuzumab on top of hormone therapy and chemotherapy? terms of the benefit? Well, there's several areas. One area is that in preclinical models, and there's a little data in humans, not much, that some of the hormone refractoriness that you see with HER2 positive disease can be reversed by using trastuzumab. So there's a potential major advantage clinically to combine those two. And that's an area actually of active investigation by many groups. The downside, obviously, is the cardiac risk, which is probably about 3%. And if patients are followed closely, most of those patients have reversible cardiac disease. So it's a small proportion of patients, and of those, very few patients have long-term effects. Can you talk more about what actually happens in these patients who do have cardiac problems? The mechanism of how trastuzumab causes cardiac problems is not completely clear. What's known is that her is required for maturation of the fetal heart so that, you know, again, we're using proteins and using targets that are not necessarily cancer-specific that are used by the body for other purposes, but we're trying to use it because the cancer perverts these purposes for our purposes. In adults, it's known that there is a low incidence of significant cardiac effects, which, depending upon the study, can be between 2 and 5%. Of those patients, whether or not there's a genetic component remains unclear. The majority of the patients who get into trouble with trastuzumab usually get into trouble within the first 90 days, but it can be up to six months. And therefore, you have to monitor their cardiac function. What most people will do is follow what was done in the intergroup study, and that is do it initially as a baseline study to make sure it's normal cardiac function, repeat it after chemotherapy, and repeat it then at six and nine months to make sure that the cardiac function is reasonable. If there is a major drop in cardiac function so that it's below the lower limits of normal or a 15 to 20% drop of ejection fraction, then the drug is obviously to be held. And there's a whole black box warning in the package insert for trastuzumab. Now, when you say 3%, you're talking about clinical congestive heart clinical. failure. 
clinical. And what are the implications for an oncology nurse in terms of maybe symptoms to sort of keep an eye out for in a patient who's on trastuzumab? It's shortness of breath. It's difficulty climbing stairs. It's difficulty carrying packages. It's anything that would obviously impact on the person's ability to function as far as exercise in one form or another. And it can be very subtle. There are some chemotherapy regimens. There's one in particular, so-called TCH regimen with docetaxel, carboplatin, and trastuzumab that don't contain anthracyclines. Do you still see the heart failure in that situation? You have a lower incidence at the present time. Dennis Lehman updated the study, which you're talking about, which compared AC docetaxel with the platinum docetaxel combination, both receiving trastuzumab. And at the present time, they seem to be equivalent so that it's one study, and that's a reasonable option at the present time with early data. In terms of the impact on recurrence rate, would you agree with the statement that all things being equal, by adding in trastuzumab, you knock the recurrence down by about 50%? I think it's the best drug we have. Would you agree with that number? Yes. Across the board, if you look at virtually all the trials, it comes in that ballpark. And although the drug has toxicity, the drug toxicity is actually, in my estimation, is less than you see with most cytotoxic chemotherapies. So if you kind of look at this numerically, you calculate what the woman's risk of recurrence might be without any therapy. In a situation like this where the tumors are positive, you have to factor in, okay, now it's going to be dropped down to some extent by hormone therapy. If you were just to use chemotherapy, it would knock it down a little bit. And then you come to that number. And so then you're saying that number gets cut in half by trastuzumab. Yes. I think the biggest issue that we're going to have to face over the next three or four years is to try to dissect out which patients do not need all this therapy and that we're obviously over-treating some patients and possibly under-treating other patients. Whether or not genomics hopefully will allow this, I don't know. But right now, we would be basically giving that woman the kitchen sink. What else would you tell her to expect in terms of possible side effects or problems with the trastuzumab? You can get interstitial pneumonitis with it for its rare. The trastuzumab has a small amount of mouse in the combining areas of the antibody in the FAB segment, so therefore it's possible to get allergic reactions to it because it's not completely humanized. How often do you see that? I haven't seen it, but it's been reported. Otherwise, except for cardiac, I really have not seen any major problems. How do you find women reacting to having to come in for a year for intravenous therapy in this situation? I don't think anybody's happy. To be chained to the physician's office or chained to the institution for a year is a tremendous problem with lifestyle, plus the issue then at that point of dealing with mortality and not being able to do when you don't know if you have limited time or not what you would really like to do, I think is a major issue. And we don't know how much is needed to get that reduction of risk ratio of 0.5. There is the FinHERA trial, which was an underpowered trial, which was a very interesting neoadjuvant trial, which only gave nine weeks of trastuzumab up front, which showed benefit. So how much is enough is unclear, but that's a major issue, yes. The last thing I want to ask you about is the next generation of trials that are going to evaluate patients in this situation. We've already talked about a couple of trials that are important out there, and now that these initial trials with trastuzumab have been reported, we're looking at other possibilities to try to salvage the people who are still relapsing. 
one that appears to be moving forward but with the NSABP and the BCRG groups moving together would be to look at the TCH regimen that we just talked about, the docetaxel, carboplatin, trastuzumab, alone or with bevacizumab. And we talked about bevacizumab in the HER2 negative situation. What do we know about bevacizumab in the HER2 positive situation? And what do you think about this study? It's, again, another permutation, and I don't know how it's going to end up. The UCLA group has reported that it's feasible. They combine trastuzumab with bezituzumab, and there's no untoward toxicity beyond what one would expect with either drug alone. There was activity. It's small numbers. It's an unclear area, and it's an unclear area because it also depends upon how large a tumor spheroid do you need to get this vessel effect. In other words, if it's only very microscopic disease, perhaps we don't need to use an anti-angiogenesis drug. We need to use something else. On the other hand, if you have a prominent clinically apparent disease where you have large tumor bulk greater than 0.5 centimeters or something of that size, then you do need. Judith Folkman's work over the last 30 years has shown that you can have small deposits of tumor that do not have a particular blood supply, then undergo a genetic change, a mutation, become angiogenic, and at that time, not only become more aggressive, but that would be more of what we would think of using bezosuzumab for that point. The other area that you didn't mention, I think really is sort of important, is that there was a lot of criticism of drug development and that no drugs are coming out, but the tyrosine kinase inhibitors, not only in breast cancer and other areas, are now hitting the clinic. And these also would be another adjunct that we will add. The next intergroup study for breast adjuvant HER2 positives, for example, is going to look at lepetinib and whether or not to combine it with trastuzumab or to use it independently. And that we're going to have a lot of other drugs that potentially can perturb these pathways at different points. And that's sort of analogous what happened with antibiotics, that antibiotics such as trimethoprine sulfur perturb a significant defolic acid pathway, for example. Can you just talk a little bit about how bevacizumab works in terms of where in the cells it has effects? Basically, it's an interesting drug. It's an antibody that inhibits vascular endothelial growth factor, which is one of the strongest anti-angiogenic substances known. And probably has a normal role because in hypoxic areas to cause blood vessel formation is a method of keeping that organism alive. But tumors pervert it, and many tumors use this to increase blood vessel supply to allow the tumor to grow. Originally, it was felt just to have a direct effect on the vessels. There more recently have been two other mechanisms that have been described. One is that what it does is there's a balance between angiogenic and anti-angiogenic substances in these tumor areas and that what it does is restore that balance back toward more normal, and the tumor vessels become less leaky. And when they become less leaky, the interstitial pressure in the tumor drops. And when the pressure drops, small molecules such as drugs can get into the tumor. So the actual mechanism of action may not be what they originally postulated, but it may be allowing better drug delivery. Another mechanism of action that has been recently described is that some tumors have VEGF receptors on their surface, and that when these receptors are activated, they are more resistant to dying, so it's an anti-apoptotic effect. So it may have an additional effect, and many times we use drugs that work through many different mechanisms. As far as trastuzumab, that's an interesting drug also because it binds to the surface of her 2 on the cell membrane and perturbs the signal that the epidermal growth factor superfamily, which was her 2 nu is one of them, into the cell, which this signal causing angiogenesis, causing anti-apoptosis, and causing proliferation. 
there is some early evidence that you might need a functioning anti-oncogene called P10, and again, it's early evidence, for that function to work. And it also allows potentially, because it's an antibody, that there may be an immunologic component in the intact person. So there are numerous mechanisms. Where I think it's going to be particularly interesting is how can we make this drug better? We know that for HER2 positive patients who have metastatic disease, approximately 20% of them who are FISH positive respond to it. And we would expect it would be higher. So the pharmacologic approach over the next several years will also be to try to enhance inhibition of these pathways with trastuzumab to see if we can enhance the effect. The final drug that you mentioned is lapatinib, which is a small molecule which inhibits the inner aspect of hertunu. Hertunu is a protein which is called transmembrane. It crosses the membrane with a little bit of it on the outside of the cell, a little bit of it on the inside of the cell. And the inner portion is inhibited by this small molecule in a thing called the ATP binding site. And therefore, it's a different mechanism for inhibiting hertunu. It raises the possibility that one might therefore want to continue to look at therapies that use different mechanisms to inhibit this pathway, use a small molecule, and use the antibody.